Would you still pass your driving test? Do you speak your mother tongue in an English accent? Are you really smarter than a GCSE student? And can you still see your toes if you don't suck in your gut first? <laughs> it's only through testing that we realize what we've forgotten. And when we test the things that matter, we find out where we really are. Are we raising our children the right way? Are we acting in accordance with God's word? Are we even doing the things that we promised ourselves that we would do? And right at the heart of all of these questions, the simplest and most important of them all, are you living by faith? Are you living by faith in Jesus Christ? Or have you forgotten? Well, today we're finishing our mini-series on city foundations with a dive into the book of James. And we believe the book to have been written by Jesus' half-brother, that same mother, wildly different father, who was a prominent leader among Messianic Jews in Jerusalem, Jews who had come to believe in Jesus. The book begins with an overview of his advice to the church before offering 12 specific lessons for believers. And each lesson offers a test of our faith, followed by advice on what to do if you don't like the results you find. Now, today, I'm going to focus on just three of those lessons based on where I think we are as Jubilee City site, which, for those of you in the know, means that I failed in at least one of the remaining nine lessons. I'd like to challenge us on these three things. Firstly, who is your bargain with? And for those who are following, that's chapter 4, 13 to 17. Secondly, are you a friend of the world? Also chapter 4, 1 to 10. And thirdly, do you have a living faith? And that's chapter 2, 14 to 26. So let's test ourselves and let's see how we fare, starting with the question of who is your bargain with? James says this. Now listen, you who say today or tomorrow we will go to this or that city, spend a year there, carry on business and make money. Why, you don't even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say... If it's the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogant schemes, and all such boasting is evil. If anyone then knows the good they should do and doesn't do it, it's sin for them. I wonder where you'll be in precisely one year's time. May 29th, 2023. What will have changed in your life? What will have stayed the same? What will you be closer to? What will you be further from? Despite occasional evidence to the contrary, we are largely the church of the organized. We are a people who plan. We save for a rainy day. We sacrifice to earn PhDs and professional qualifications. We raise profitable children. If I asked you whether you have a five-year plan, you would almost certainly laugh it off but I bet that you do. I'm sure it's not carefully written out and itemized in your five-year plan book, but I think it's in your head. Let's find out together by seeing how you react to these statements. You are never going to own a house. You are never going to have children. You are going to have several more children, even at your advanced age, and soon. You are never going to retire. 
you are going to leave your job tomorrow and never go back. I've booked you five Teams meetings for Monday. <laughs> and just like that, your future plans are revealed. Each of us has bargained with the future in ways that are only revealed when the bargain is tested. And yet James tells us we should be doing something different. I think the clue to unlocking this is to understand that we are always making a bargain with something. And if that thing isn't God, we can't expect the bargain to hold. What we do is we sacrifice to an idea in the hope that the idea will repay that sacrifice with interest. Maybe you've been bargaining with money. You've saved so you could go on holiday or buy a new house or just have security. Maybe you're smart enough that you invested that money in the hope of growing your pot. You sacrificed in the present to bargain with the future. And as the stock market has plummet, plummeted and inflation is rising, how is that bargain working out for you? Maybe you've been bargaining with your job, trusting that through diligence and sacrifice, you will progress up a ladder sufficiently until you can have all of the things that you want. Maybe you believe that at some point you'll hit a golden plateau where you are well-paid, well-valued, and underworked. <laughs> Wasn't expecting that to get a laugh, but now that I said it, yeah. <laughs> Many of us in the room who've been through recessions, cutbacks, or even just a loss of job satisfaction can tell you that that's not a bargain that's going to hold. Maybe your bargain is simply with a version of the world that you have in your head, a picture of how your life should go based on your parents' lives and the lives you see around you. An expectation that things will simply work out if you basically do the right thing. And yet, which of us have not lived through tragedy? So none of these bargains can hold. Neither money, nor your work, nor your own expectations, or anything else that you have bargained with is anything other than a roll of loaded dice. And I think almost everyone in the room has a story that can prove that that's true. So who have you made your bargain with? Have you sacrificed to a version of your future dictated by qualifications, investments, inheritance, Bitcoin, and a restful retirement? Or have you brought yourself to God? Have you made your bargain with God? Or have you forgotten? For our second section, we need to look at whether you are a friend of the world. And the easiest way to do that is with a game of credibility buckaroo. Hopefully, you remember the children's game. There's a plastic donkey, and you load it with a greater and greater burden until the spring fires and all the pieces fall under the sofa. I'm going to steadily raise the stakes of things that you could do at your work, in your school, or in your community, and you decide when it becomes too much and you need to escape. Now, there's no need to tell me. I'll see it from the defeated look in your eyes. <laughs> Firstly, someone asks how your weekend was, and you say you went to church. Someone asks how your weekend was, and you say you helped at church. Someone asks why you took a certain action, and you say God told you to do it in prayer. A colleague is suffering, and so you pray for them in person by laying on hands. Your boss gets ill, and God tells you that he'll heal them if you pray with them for healing, but only if you tell them that's what you're going to do before you do it. A colleague has a problem, and you tell them that Jesus is the answer. Well, it's not easy, is it? 
I'm afraid we all have a rather serious case of friend of the world. And here's what James has to say about it. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Or do you think that scripture says without reason that he jealously longs for the spirit that he has caused to dwell in us? But he gives us more grace. And that's why scripture says God opposes the proud but shows favor to the humble. Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Come near to God and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. How would Jesus fit into your context? And what has the world offered you for your compromise? Usually the answer to the first is explosively. And the answer to the second is comfort. We all like to imagine the watershed moment when an evil villain presents us with a moral choice and we get to bravely say no. But reality happens in dribs and drabs. Gossip over a coffee. Workplace policy. The things you need to do to get by. Keeping your head down for a while. And how does that affect your relationship with the church? Have you ever turned down serving as a Christian for the way that it would affect your work? How would you behave differently if I told you that right now one of your colleagues had walked into the back and was looking a little lost? When it really comes down to it, which are you valuing more? Which gets more of your thought, your time, and your resources? Is it communion with God who jealously desires you, or is it progress in the world? Are you making yourself a friend of Jesus first, despite the cost? Or have you forgotten? And thirdly, how alive is your faith? I'd like you to imagine that I had invited you over to the current mansion next week for a steak lunch. Now, you don't know me very well, but I've told you very clearly that I am a great steak maker, steak chef, steak griller. I'm a great griller of steak, and that this will be a meal worth waiting for. What do you have for breakfast that day? Well, the answer depends almost entirely on your faith in me. For those that believe the most in my prowess as a griller of sirloin, the answer would be nothing. Leave space. Anticipate. Maybe even skip your traditional half-pack of biscuits the night before. Whereas for those of little faith, they might show up with the crumbs of their second Big Mac barely off their lips. Whether we intend to or not, our faith is evidenced by our actions. Our faith is evidenced by our actions. And both parts are integral. So the churchgoer who starves themselves for days beforehand but fails to actually show up for the dinner is just left hungry. The actions alone have no value without the promise. Similarly, the person who believes in steak ever after but eats a full fry up for breakfast and then tops it up with donuts doesn't fully experience the reward. Actions are an inevitable outpouring of your faith. They demonstrate what you really believe. James has this to say. 
What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such a faith save them? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if not accompanied by action, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you my faith by my deeds. You believe that there is one God, good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. You foolish person, do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? Was not our father Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith and his actions were working together, and his faith was made complete by what he did. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. And he was called God's friend. You see that a person is considered righteous by what they do, and not by faith alone. When James talks about needing both faith and deeds, I don't think he's trying to guilt us into obeying more laws. He's just stating a plain fact that our actions spring from our faith. They are an unavoidable indicator of what we truly believe. I think most of us could muster the faith to skip breakfast for a steak dinner. But it's a lot harder when the ask is longer term. We are promised eternal life. We are promised that our sins are forgiven. Do we really believe those things? Well, it's our actions that tell us. So have you made your bargain with God? Are you making yourself a friend of Jesus first, despite the cost? And is your faith alive in your actions, or have you forgotten? Have you forgotten that this is a story that is written for you? Have you forgotten that long before you were born, God hatched a plan to bring you into relationship with him? That he didn't do so because you were so great, in fact, quite the opposite, but because he wanted to. Have you forgotten that your father in heaven doesn't just know what you need, but he promises to give you good things when you ask? And have you forgotten that the solution when you feel convicted is not to hide from God, but to come before him to ask for more wisdom and let him gladly provide it? For those of us who've made our bargain with the world, James reminds us that we're misguided. Your plans are nothing. As we see time and time and time again, the evils of the world can and will disrupt them constantly. How little would things have to go wrong to completely disrupt your Monday? Your Wi-Fi is down. Your car develops a leak. Your flight is cancelled. You have 300 new emails. Instead, we should seek God's will first and build our days on that. And this sounds petrifying until you remember that God gives us good things and that his kingdom is good by definition. I wonder how many of us in the room are in this city or in their job because they feel that God has put them there. Less camel hair jackets and locusts for breakfasts, more satisfying work and meaningful change. Your bargain with the world can't hold, but your bargain with God can't fail. And what about those of us who know that we've become friends of the world? 
This is surely my opportunity to put on my best Twitter mob impersonation and guilt you into lawful isolation. Brown robes, crumbling monasteries. Unless you're correcting your friends every time they use the word Jesus as a swear word, you're not good enough. A real Christian would be destitute and in jail by now. At the very least, you should be in community service. (laughs) And yet James doesn't accuse us this way. He draws us back to God by reminding us that God jealously desires us. He hungers for our presence. If your hero walked into the room now, you might feel the same. You'd hope that they would talk to you. You would try to catch their eye. You would feel left out when they spent time talking to others. You would jealously desire their presence. And this is how James tells us God desires us. And yet we can often act as if we're unloved, unwanted. Like a spurned child, we can seek to make ourselves into our own little gods, our plans, our successes, self-sufficient, and all the difficult compromises that we need to make along the way to get there. We become proud of our own godliness and self-sufficiency, and so put ourselves in opposition to him. And James says, submit yourself to God. Resist the devil. Come near to God and he will come near to you. And finally, remember that deeds don't create faith. They evidence it. In the two examples James shows of Abraham and Rahab, both are about faith and deeds working together. The deed is the proof of the faith, the inevitable overflowing. When Abraham was willing to sacrifice Isaac, his actions showed the depth of his faith, which was the real prize. When Rahab took in the Israelite spies, her faith and her actions were working together. By working for God's people, she proved her faith in God. And it would be easy for this to accidentally become a question of the law. How many deeds exactly do I need? And how often? Is one big one sufficient or should I regularly top up? with lots of little ones. Is there an app? Are there bonuses for doing the deeds that no one else seems to want to do? Does cleaning the toilets count double? And can I get them out of the way early with a bit of mission and then get on with my life? And yet the question is never about what or how many, but rather why. A healthy faith cannot help but produce the fruits of the spirit. The deeds are simply the evidence of the faith a useful indicator of where you are and where you're going. Does your faith produce deeds or have you forgotten? Well, we are Jubilee City site. And next week, we're going to try and work out together what that means for our church. I'm therefore going to resist the temptation to tell you what I think this all means because I think we need to work it out together. And instead, I'm going to leave you with this challenge from the end of James's 12 lessons. And this would be a great time for the band to come back. Thank you. I'm going to leave you with this challenge from the end of James's 12 lessons. Is anyone among you in trouble? Let them pray. Is anyone happy? Let them sing songs of praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let them call the elders of the church to pray over them and anoint them with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. The Lord will raise them up. If they've sinned, they'll be forgiven. 
Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. We're going to close with a time of response. If you need prayer, there are people in the church who would love to pray for you. If you're happy, sing songs of praise. If you need healing, come and pray. Amen.